It's Christmas party time. We had an amazing uh, Christmas party at the Crab's house this past Friday. It's our best ever. It was really, really fun. And so next year, you need to make plans on being at the Carriage House for our annual Christmas festival. It's just, it was just a real joy. And uh, like many of you who would attend holiday parties or Christmas parties for work, you know that part and parcel of the Christmas party in our culture is copious amounts of alcohol. Uh, people will say, we're here uh, to have Christmas joy. And so they define Christmas joy based on uh, how much eggnog that is spiked they can process in a very short uh, period of time. And, and it's really you know, odd that a Christian holiday is you know, basically celebrated and the joy of Christmas is celebrated by people getting inebriated. But it does make sense if you've ever been inebriated, and I have to confess to you today that many, many times in my youth uh, that was the case. And, and, and there's something that happens when you drink a lot, and that is that you become sort of carefree. Uh, foolishly so. Uh, you actually stop caring what people think. Again, foolishly so. Um, and and I, all of the trouble I ever got into as a child happened when I was under the influence of too much alcohol. And, and as a child, any alcohol is too much, but you know what I'm saying. So when, uh, when that wears off, though, the joy, the so-called joy, is gone. And so people will go to Christmas parties and they will experience what they might think is joy and then within like a, uh, just a few minutes of waking the next day, they're back to the humdrum. And so, you know, as we conclude our Advent season with the discussion of joy, it made me think a lot about what is joy. And you say, well, you know, do Christians deal with this same issue? And I would say, yes, many of us have found other places that have provided great joy for us um, that is really temporary. And so our hearts are longing for something a little bit more substantive. And I know that there are many Christians that, you know, that have looked to alcohol and other stimulants to provide their joy because um, one of the things that happened this past month when Carolyn and I, or this past summer when Carolyn and I were traveling was as we pulled into our hometown of Tallahassee, Florida, I, we pulled up behind a car on the freeway on the 10, just the east end of it, of the country, and he was sort of weaving in and out of the traffic very slowly, um, like a drunk driver. And so as we pulled up behind him, uh, you know, I noticed that there was a Christian bumper sticker on the car. And this presented a dilemma for me, because I had historically done this. I, I had actually kind of pulled a drunk driver off the road once when I was in seminary and just kind of took the car and got in front of him and then forced him out of the car. And, you know, it's a long story. I'll tell you another time. But by the time the police got there, they couldn't arrest the guy because I'd actually been the one who took him out of the car. So this time I decided I was going to be a lot more crafty and I was actually going to um, you know, think about how I should do this. And you think, wow, this is, a, this is ostensibly a Christian brother, or at least a, somebody who's willing to identify with Christianity enough to put a bumper sticker on their car. And right there, I would say, I'm not willing to do that. So I'm betting this person at least enjoys the idea of being a Christian. So I, 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 I was driving down a road and, and, and this, this, all of a sudden this police officer, a state trooper drives by us really fast. And it dawns on me, I got to flag this guy down. And what a great excuse to exceed the speed limit because I'm chasing the police officer to report a, a drunk driver. And so this is like a real great moment for me. So I just get to floor the gas and I pull up next to this 
speeding state trooper who must have been like really shocked that you know somebody was pulling up beside him trying to get his attention and i make this symbol uh and then uh See, now, at first, he probably thought, you're the one drinking, and then I went, and so what happened was, is then I pulled in front of him, and I pulled off the road, and he pulled up behind us, and I explained to him, there's a drunk driver coming down the road, and we waited there until this drunk driver drove past us, and I said, that would be the car, and then he hopped back into his trooper mobile and, and tracked the guy down. Later at my parents' house, I get this call from the state trooper, and he says, well, we arrested him. Um, he was a drunk and this was his fourth DUI. And so I thought, you know, I, I had a sense. Now, I want to clarify here. I wasn't happy about that because I'm not, like, vindictive, and I'm as equally as broken as everybody else. But there was a sense of joy that I got to participate with the trooper and my wife in, uh, <laughs> in preventing somebody from getting hurt. And if you really want to get deep about it, there is a joy associated with a Christian brother having to come face to face with something that was hurting him as well. That it was actually loving to pull him over, have him pulled over and arrested because like the rest of us, he is prone to putting things in the place of God. And this would probably be the greatest gift anybody could give him. You're gonna spend a couple of nights in the clink and rethink whether or not you want this to be more important than the relationship with Jesus that you've expressed you have with that bumper sticker on the back of your car. So you and I are in really no different shape. What is joy? Now, have you seen this picture? This is not uh, the ideal family Christmas picture. All right. And anybody with kids has actually been someplace like this before. Happiness, if you want to distinguish between happiness and joy, happiness is an outward experience. It's based on circumstances. Things happen, they make you happy. Joy is nothing you can force. It's an inward peace and a contentment that's based on something more elusive, more mysterious. If I must give one quick definition of the kind of joy we're talking about to distinguish between that and happiness, I would say it's the experience I have on Christmas morning. I am going to be happy to unwrap the new TV I get. All right, I talked about that before. That will make me happy. I will have joy watching my kids open the presents I bought them. There's a difference. See, that is theirs is lasting. The looks on their faces, the happiness that they've experienced. Carolyn and I were visiting this past week about uh, what joy was with regards to our kids, and it was when our, both our kids... We're at Arcadia High School at the same time, and Nick played football, and Holly was the captain of the cheerleaders, and we would go and sit in our little reserved seats, and it was the greatest time of our life. No offense to you guys right now. It was really enjoyable. We, we actually sat there and watched our kids, and you think, well, why? Because they were doing what they were good at and loved doing. There was just something really wonderful about watching our kids play. I was reading a Facebook post I agreed to uh, uh, do a few years back. I don't do them much anymore because the novelty has sort of wore off. And what happens is they sent this like 40 questions kind of survey. And so I filled it out. And if you go on my Facebook, you can see it. But one of the questions was, what gives you the most joy in life? And in 2009, I wrote, and it's still true, listening listening to my children laugh together. Now, it's usually happening at my expense, which is... Which, 
But truthfully, this is the essence of joy. You know, I mean, when they start beating up on me and they make dad the object of all their sarcasm and stuff, I think to myself, I've trained them well. <laughs> and at the very least, I have this, this sense that, you know, there's a joy that comes that has nothing to do with my circumstances. It has everything to do with something within me that said, this is joyous. I have to make a quick detour All right, before I actually get to my two points today about Christmas joy, where it comes from, uh, the things we could learn about joy from the Christmas narrative today. And this is a a really brief theological rabbit trail that I just couldn't avoid. So forgive me if you feel like this is a smidge off topic, but it isn't in that sense. When people speak of the joy of the Lord being their strength, and if you have a religious background, you've heard people say this. And I've had numerous encounters with people, some highly placed, quote unquote, so-called Christian ministers who would talk about the joy of the Lord. And, and if you've wondered, you know, do I have the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord, is it my strength? All these things that you might have sung or heard, oftentimes for some, of pe- some people, all right, the joy of the Lord would be defined as some type of good feeling you get as a result of your obedience to God's word. The joy of the Lord for some would be defined as perhaps a feeling of it's okay now for me to be excited about being a Christian because I'm doing it well. A joy that they think they're having that is as a result of something they've done. I know now the joy of the Lord. Some people, and I as a young Christian in a ultra sort of charismatic church environment, that often was how I define the joy of the Lord. I felt a certain joy when I was obedient to God. That's a good thing. But the joy of the Lord is not the feeling we get when we do well. The joy of the Lord is a spirit-produced gift produced by the realization that God's love for you is unconditional, his acceptance of you is total, and his delight in you is real. Because you're his, and he really enjoys you. Like my children, who were getting in all sorts of mischief in high school, that didn't stop us from rejoicing and enjoying them because we were part of creating them. We were part of God's plan for their lives. We love them. They are flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone and blood of our blood. And when they are enjoying themselves, that gives us joy. They experience the joy of their parents and it's not related to them and what they do. It's related to who they are. See, in Christ, you and I have been given a picture of how much God really loves and enjoys us. And this joy is an unearned gift. Charles Spurgeon says, the notion of God making a covenant with us is a deed, a stupendous condescension of which might ravish our hearts forever if we could really understand it. See, if you can, if I can get a picture of the Lord's love for me, as we will discover today, It will produce some characteristics. It will produce joy. It will produce a variety of different things. In our passage today, the first two verses of Matthew chapter 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? 
We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And this is essentially, in a nutshell, what happens when a person genuinely encounters Jesus. It inevitably leads to worship. If it doesn't, they haven't encountered him. So let's look real quick about what we can learn about joy from today's Advent Advent narrative in Matthew chapter 2. The first thought I'd have for you this morning is this. Joy has nothing to do with our circumstances. Joy has nothing to do with our circumstances. Let me read again from the text, verses 3 through 8. When King Herod heard that this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And we had, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me that I too may go and worship him. What you need to know is that the king was not happy when he and all of Israel's leaders heard that there was somebody born that people were referring to the king of the Jews. You can see how it would upset the actual king and then the people who were the Jewish leadership's Uh, at the time thinking, who are these people to determine who is going to lead us? You see the reaction of King Herod. You see the threat that was posed to both he and the Jewish leadership. And you contrast that with the Magi. These are really stargazers. Uh, We would refer to them in uh, modern day as astrologist. These Gentile non-believers. They said, we, we have seen and heard this of this and we're going to worship. The response of the others was, this threatens us, we're going to resist it. It foreshadows the response, the future response that Jewish leadership would have to Jesus and the future welcoming of Gentile believers into the people of God. And there's a great additional principle involved that has amazing relevance to our mission as a church to not only be revived in our own appreciation for how much God loves us, but then to take that a step further and actually reach people who don't know the Lord's love and actually be part of renewing culture. And what we mean by that is that the things we would do from renovation of a chapel to art programs to the varying skills and tasks and vocations that we all have and do in this world, people would see the creative beauty of God in what we're doing. They would see God through the things that we do. They would reflect components of his character and the things that we would do collectively as a church as well. People would see the attributes of Jesus. Now, here's the principle I was talking about. These astrologists were doing something, divining the future through star reading, that was a sin according to the Old Testament. And yet God goes into their world God showed up in their context to reach them. So they're doing something that's a violation of the law. They're going, oh, what does the future say? There is no God. Let's pull all these things. Oh, the age of Aquarius, fun. And 
And into this world, God says, hey, I'm going to come here and put a star in your world to get your attention. I think that's fascinating. I think the ramifications for that, for us as the church, are we need to actually be engaged with people. If you and I aren't in the world with people who don't know the Lord, how in the world are they ever going to see his glory? It's going to come through you and it's going to come through me. What we also see from this passage that I absolutely love is you see the king beginning to plot against Jesus. I'm fascinated by this because from the very beginning of Jesus' life, the power structures that be are going, we got to fight this. This is not going to be good. I mean, from the outset, it's like, oh, he is a threat. All the way through his life and into his ministry and ultimately his death, it seemed that the circumstances in life were against him. His birth is in a barn because Joseph was not a good planner and didn't go on orbits to find out there were no hotel rooms. I mean, so, you know, you're, you're looking at a place where you're saying, how, how in the world this is not good? You know, the, things from the very outset, it's like, wow, can you imagine there's a couple, we have a couple of pregnant women in our church actually having to travel by donkey like that pregnant I mean, I would not be happy with my so-called husband at that juncture. You know, it would be not a, a pleasant experience. Things were difficult from, from, from day one for Jesus. He gets born, some people are worshiping, but the power, the real power, the, the ecclesiastical power of the Jewish leadership and the governmental power that was the king are immediately saying, I'm against this. What we see here is that God is sovereign even over the affairs and bad intentions of men. This is one of the great lessons of the gospel, that from his birth, through his life, and ultimately in his death, Jesus knew the Father was in control, governing all circumstances. They just played into God's plan. You might be in a place where you're saying, this person, that person is messing with my happiness. Well, let me tell you something. They can't mess with your joy. Because that joy is found in this deep sense that God is sovereign over all these things. Proverbs 21.1 is one of my favorite verses. Ironically, the first and last verses of this proverb are two of the ones that I've really committed to memory. They've been helpful. The first is this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. You know, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and you've looked at how the, the Colorado River over the time of earth has carved out this rolling canyon. And you think, wow, the power of a river, a big flowing river. If you've ever rode across the Mississippi on your cross-country trip and thought, this is a huge river. It's just tearing the turf anywhere it wants to go. The scriptures say the Lord just puts his finger down and that thing goes a different direction. The, the, The king's heart is like a river, and God can just make it do whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it. And we've seen this in the Old Testament. We've seen this in the New Testament. And Jesus, at his very heart, knew that if something bad was going on, it was going on because God was allowing it to. It was ultimately playing into the plan of God. John Calvin said, We ought to bear in mind that our happiness consists in this, that his hand is stretched forth to govern us, that we live under his shadow, and that his providence keeps watch and ward over our welfare. Circumstances in life are difficult, friends, by God's design. I want you to hear that because you're not going to hear it on Christian TV. 
Circumstances in life are difficult by God's design. They are means of seeing his character in and through us and through others. The Apostle Paul wrote of his own experience. Now this is the leader of the church outreach to the Gentiles that is the product of Jesus' coming. Paul says this about his experience as the leader of the church. All right, In our day and age, he, he would be the most celebrated pastor the, the, the person who would be uh, on TV a lot and have a lot of best-selling books. This is the Apostle Paul. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Okay, this is the description of his life characteristics. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 7, for when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. This doesn't sound to me like somebody who's living above it that's so developed in their Christian experience that they would never have fear. I rebuke that fear in the name of Jesus. They're like, he's like killing himself, and he's writing. I'm like, we had, we're just absolutely beside ourselves. We had fears within, we had conflicts without. But God, who comforts the downcast, and I think it's really important too to recognize, you've got to be downcast to get the comfort of God. You're not going to experience the comfort of God upcast in the best part of your world, it's when you're really down and low that you experience comfort. Comforted by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you'd given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Paul's circumstances hadn't changed one bit. The joy that was now in him was related to the relationships he developed, to the to the content of his heart that he wasn't alone, this sense that God's people loved him. He was still getting beaten everywhere he went. He was still persecuted everywhere he went. He still had all that anxiety that he was carrying around for all the churches he'd started. These things are real to Paul, but he had joy. It's not found in the comfort of circumstances, but the comfort of God's love expressed through relationship with others and relationship with God. And oftentimes for us, we experience God when we're forced to go without those things that have occupied his room in our heart. That's why we sing in joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. See, that's like a metaphor of this inn that Jesus and his family couldn't find a room And oftentimes that's the case for us. The Lord comes and there's no room in our proverbial inn. We're being told we need to make space for that. And some of us won't make space for that until God creates that space. Life gets difficult. We start to see the valuelessness of holding on to our money or to our, the, a bad relationship, or to even a good relationship that's meant, that, mean, that means too much, or maybe it's something completely un, not understandable by a guy like me, but you know in your heart that when that doesn't go your way, boy, the world starts to feel just wrong, and your joy is absent, and that's because Jesus is no longer the source of that joy. Joy has nothing to do with our circumstances. But let me tell you what it has everything to do with. Joy has everything to do with God's faithfulness. That's where joy is found. 
Joy is found in the faithfulness of God. That's, that's the storehouse of our joy. Again, I read from the text in Matthew 2, verse 9. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when he saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Several things in this passage that I think should encourage you and I. One is, joy comes always at the end of the journey. Right? Understand, these guys, these, these magi came from the east, and in some scholastic corners, they believe these guys literally walked from Iraq to Israel. In modern-day Iraq, they, they walked that far. They followed this star across some rough terrain. Robbers, thieves, all along the way, I'm sure. These, these travelers, these magi, traveled a long way and not rapidly. And their joy when arriving at the, at the child, at the location of the Messiah, was not mere happiness, but a wonderful combination of grace and love packed together with the suspense of wondering when and how something is going to come to pass. This sense of, wow, what we've been told is actually true. The king is here. We haven't been misled. We haven't been deceived. We haven't been fools. We followed this star over a long journey, and here we are. God has been faithful. Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 24 say, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Joy does not come in getting what you want right now. It comes at this place, even in the journey where you're saying, God's going to provide. I don't know how. I can't see the end from the beginning. And then once he does provide, you recognize there's joy in his faithfulness. We've seen that lately at our church. Uh, We, in the past, have had people um, feel like God was leading them to move on from prism, um, sometimes because they thought the pace of church growth was too slow or that the church wasn't large enough for them for some reason and that meant something was wrong. And I would say that the greatest joy that some people in our church have felt have, that they've been here since the beginning and they've just kind of endured saying we believe God's called us to be a part of something. We, we don't see the end. We don't know how this is all going to end. But we are journeying together with Jesus and there is a joy. It's, it's not necessarily just happiness, although there are elements of it that make me happy. There's something more profound at work. We're seeing God do what he does. We're getting to watch God be faithful we're getting to watch God do what only God could do. And it's producing a solemn, lasting joy. It's also fascinating in our passage today to see what knowing God's faithfulness does to the Magi because it is really the essence of what the New Testament talks about 
when we come to experience Jesus, the Bible calls it we have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Let's track through the life of the Magi if you can. They are in their own world doing life their own way with not, not much thought for the living God and certainly with no knowledge of Jesus. And into that world, the grace of God goes and they are led, drawn to Jesus. I love in the passage where it says that they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they'd seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was, which means from the time they started to the time where they got to Jesus, this star kind of led them along the way. And this is really picturesque of what happens for us, no matter whether or not you're fortunate enough to be born into a Christian family or whether or not you are somebody who discovered Christ through the friends or family. God intervened into your life and began leading you to Jesus. And then when somebody really experiences Jesus, there are some things that inevitably happen. You see what happens in the life of these magi. They respond with joy because what they have been led to believe is actually true. And it fills their life with something powerful. And in response to actually encountering Jesus, they start giving over their life to worship they start giving everything they have to him. And then ultimately, they are led by the Spirit to not follow the king's advice and go back, but to go the other direction. And so they submit to the Lord. This is what happens when somebody really encounters Jesus. This is the pattern. You experience, you're led to him, you experience him, you worship him, you give your life to him, and, and you trust him when he says, that's not good, don't go there. I'm telling you, if you want to be part of my plan, you're going to go here. And they just follow along. This is the beautiful truth that God is faithful to us from the start of our life to the end of our life. You see it in Jesus' experience. All along the way, even with all of these hiccups and what would look like bad planning or any number of things that are going on in Jesus' life, the kings and the leaders coming against him and plotting against him from his inception, what you and I are looking at is similar. Some of us feel like we, we just are in, under such strain and we don't have a, a, a solemn sort of internal peace and joy that is found in the reality of knowing that God is in charge, that God is going to provide. And that in so doing, through our lives, he proves himself to the people around us. We're living testimonies of what Jesus wants to do in the lives of others and in this world. He rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Is that unfamiliar? It's because we sing it. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That is joy. That is what lasts beyond the mere temporal experience of pleasure or even the badly timed experience of uh, overindulgence in food or drink. We're looking at something that's so much more profound and it is only experienced in a genuine encounter 
with Jesus. Today we'll conclude our Advent season by doing what we do each week, which is calling you to the communion table. And it's a table not just of a sacrificial rite that we do. It, it is an actual call for you to come to Jesus as the Magi did and say, I have need and give over your life to him. You are coming to Jesus symbolically in these elements and you are saying through the mystical union of the Spirit's presence with us here in worship, I'm going to respond to Jesus to being guided to him, to being directed to him by giving him my lives, my life. And, and incidentally, as a quick footnote, that's why we have the offering box with the communion table and all that and why we don't pass the gold plates or have elders stand there and have a basket in your face. Uh, you know, th- this is about you giving your gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh, whatever it is you have to Jesus. You bring him your life, You bring him your gifts. This is what happens when people genuinely experience the incarnate, living Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Let us pray. Our Father, we're humbled that you love us so much. We're humbled that you have gone, uh, uh, we are humbled that you have gone way, way out of your way to demonstrate what the scriptures say. This is, Father, an amazing condescension. I pray that it would ravish our hearts forever. I pray that you would give us grace to recognize what that means, that you have gone out of your way to love and care for us, to guide us. And I pray that as the Magi gave their lives as gifts of worship, we would do the same today. In Jesus' name.